our main story today is about school surveillance. Uh, last month, when Mauerbytes published joint research with one password about the online habits of parents and teenagers today, we spoke with a Bay Area high school graduate about how she spends her days online and what she thinks are the hardest parts about growing up so deeply surrounded by the internet. We learned a lot in that conversation about the time sink of Instagram, the black hole, as it was called, of TikTok, and just the rules for posting photos online. But we didn't spend any time on a worrying trend now spreading fast across schools in the United States, which is student and school surveillance. Digital student surveillance is new in the sense that its promises are still shaky, and that's what much of today's episode will be about. It's also new enough, though, that we don't have firm numbers on its use, and that's partly because there isn't one single approach to student surveillance that we have holistically measured. Student surveillance as a term is an umbrella. There's the surveillance of students' messages to one another and things like emails or chats. There's the surveillance of their public posts on platforms like Twitter or Instagram. There are even tools that claim they can integrate directly with Google products like Google Docs to try to scan for worrying language about self-harm or harm towards others or drug use. There's also software that comes close to remote monitoring and management capabilities. So viewing the screen of a student's device or taking control of it, which in a situation of, say, tech support, is quite normal. And what's interesting about these student surveillance methods is that they often show up in separate siloed products, uh, one product for each capability or group of capabilities. In other words, the tool that monitors Twitter posts won't also be the same tool that lets you view a student's device screen. Those are different. And that's just software. Uh, Some surveillance methods require hardware, require physical things. Facial recognition technology paired with high-resolution cameras is often sold with the promise that it can screen school staff and visitors when they approach a building. Uh, Some products even claim to detect emotion in a person's face. Uh, Other software, when paired with microphones that are placed within classrooms, claims to detect aggression. A shout or a yelp or a belting of anger would, in theory, trigger a warning from these types of monitoring applications, maybe alerting a school administrator to a problem as it is happening. And already, we can see why this is so difficult to track. Has a school installed security cameras? Yes. Are those cameras paired with facial recognition technology? That's a different thing. Does a school monitor its students' devices? Yes. Is it so they can look inside their emails or to just provide tech support? Does a school use a student monitoring app? Is the app only installed on school devices? Or is it strongly recommended for the students' personal devices at home? In 2019, the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University tried to get a handle on the growing student surveillance trend, and they did so by looking at something called Smart Procure, a database of government purchase orders. This database is essentially built through self-reporting, so schools recorded when they bought monitoring software specifically to flag concerning social media posts, so anything on public Facebook pages or Instagram or Twitter. Again, that's one type of software being purchased by schools that record that purchase. And even in that narrow subset, what the Brandon Center found is that the number of schools reporting those purchases increased 
by more than tenfold between 2013 and 2018, from just six school districts reporting those purchases in 2013 to 63 districts in 2018. But even that data obscures the truth a bit about the actual number of students who are affected because some school districts carry far more students than others, obviously. According to the same investigation from the Brennan Center, some school districts known to have purchased social media monitoring technology represent tens or even hundreds of thousands of students. Orange County, Florida, which purchased these tools in 2015, 2016, and 2018, has more students than Little Rock, Arkansas has people. In 2021, the Center for Democracy and Technology tried a different approach to measuring student surveillance. It surveyed teachers in kindergarten through 12 schools and simply asked if their schools used monitoring software. 81% said yes. Today's episode is about surveillance, and as is tradition for this topic, it's an episode with no guest. We're going to discuss multiple stories today about school surveillance, relying on the excellent work from journalists at ProPublica, The Dallas Morning News, CNET, The Guardian, Slate, Ed Surge, and the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. And something that is a little different about today's episode on surveillance is that it won't focus very much on right or wrong, that there won't be a lot of morality invoked here about a student's right to privacy or about the known problems regarding child surveillance. And believe me, there are known problems regarding child surveillance. Multiple studies from UNICEF and the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada and the University of Central Florida have shown that child monitoring tools, when used heavily against children, tend to create more strained relationships between children and their parents, tend to push children into keeping more secrets from their parents, and risk stunting the emotional maturity of children as they grow and question their identities, beliefs, and behaviors. Those risks are actually secondary today. And that's because there's a bigger problem with student surveillance, which is that from what we know and what others have tested, it doesn't guarantee the one thing that a lot of us think it will, which is keeping children alive. And I understand that sounds grim, but here are the words used by one of the largest distributors of student surveillance software, Navigate360 on its own website. Navigate 360 solutions are used by more than 35,000 schools, 5,000 law enforcement agencies, and 4,400 businesses nationwide to help organizations prepare and respond in ways proven to save lives and help communities thrive. As will become clear in today's episode, too many of us buy and use this software because we think it will help solve a uniquely American problem. School shootings. This is Lock and Code. I'm your host, David Reese. Today's episode does not contain any graphic depictions of school shootings, but it does discuss details and the topic itself. On February 14th, 2018, the students, staff, and family members of those attending Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, suffered from the worst high school shooting in United States history. A 19-year-old former student who had been expelled in 2017 entered one of the buildings of the school and in under six minutes shot and killed 17 people, injuring 17 others. Among the dead were 14 students and three staff members. 
3,000 miles away, a Catholic school in Seattle began rethinking its own approach to security. St. Therese Catholic Academy is a small school for just about 150 students who are enrolled in the school's preschool through 8th grade classes. It is located inside the same red brick church that hosts St. Therese Parish. And for years, it had just one camera pointed at the school's entrance. The video feed for that camera poured into a reportedly tiny screen that could be checked by office staff when letting someone into the building. But after the shooting in Parkland, the school's principal, Matt DeBoer, told the education news outlet EdSearch that the school invested heavily in extra security measures, installing several high-resolution cameras outside the church and pairing the video feeds from those new cameras with facial recognition software. So we went from nothing to state-of-the-art, DeBoer told EdSearch. That transition was measured, and it didn't happen alone. Uh, According to the same reporting from EdSearch, in the months following the shooting in Parkland, DeBoer had become interested in the technology capabilities of a company called Real Networks. That Seattle-based company was founded in 1994 with an early focus on internet streaming. It broadcast a baseball game between the Yankees and the Mariners as early as 1995. Uh, But over the years, Real Networks diversified its product portfolio, eventually launching a product that it calls SAFR, or Secure Accurate Facial Recognition. In 2018, Real Networks made a major announcement. Its SAFR technology would be made available to all K-12 schools in the United States and Canada for free. According to the company's July 17th press release that year, SAFR utilizes existing internet protocol-based cameras and readily available hardware to recognize staff, students, and visitors in real time to help improve school safety while concurrently providing additional benefits that strengthen security such as streamlining entry, record-keeping, campus monitoring, and guest check-in. Getting St. Therese Catholic Academy ready for the use of SAFR required some additional networking costs, according to EdSearch. That included, yes, the new security cameras, but also new Apple devices and an upgrade for the school's Wi-Fi, which in all cost the school about $24,000. But for that price tag and for the quick work, St. Therese reportedly became one of the first K-12 schools to take advantage of Real Networks' now-free software. According to EdSearch, St. Therese outfitted two of its five entryways with the facial recognition cameras and registered all staff but no students in the system, a simple process that involves scanning a face and typing a name into a computer. The software is programmed to allow authorized users into the building with a smile. You go up, give it a neutral look so it recognizes who you are, then smile, and the door opens, DeBoer says. Other visitors require individual approval to be granted access. The technology was an instant hit among staff, DeBoer says. Cool is the adjective I hear most. But it goes beyond the sleek sci-fi allure. We don't want to think about safety and security, but we kind of have to, he says. This technology has taken that worry and thinking away from classroom teachers to free them up to teach. I I think this resonates with all of us. I, I come from a family of teachers, actually, and it's become increasingly hard to think about what they have to think about. 
I don't go through active shooter drills. I don't worry about a catastrophic grief that for too many parents in America today is familiar. Even when I watched public funding get stripped from my family's profession, even when, right, those were the stakes so many years ago, even then I could sympathize with the feeling that teachers should be free to teach. But that world is gone. And it's only because it's been added onto so much. St. Therese Catholic Academy's decision to update and upgrade its security following the shooting in Parkland is, in retrospect, almost the norm. When researching school surveillance for this very episode, I came across school after school that either cited the shooting in Parkland or an earlier shooting in 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut as the sort of breaking point for doing things differently, and and that includes adopting new forms of surveillance. The fact is, school shootings are dramatically shaping how we track our kids. We shouldn't singularly criticize schools for this. They are faced with a problem that seemingly will not stop, and understandably, they are looking for any semblance of safety but we should scrutinize how these tools have ended up in just so many schools, because it isn't happening in a vacuum. In 2019, The Guardian reported on this massive surge in school surveillance that took place immediately following the Parkland shooting. Amelia Vance, the Director of Education Privacy at the Future of Privacy Forum, told The Guardian that this surge wasn't one-sided. As Vance said, I heard from a lot of districts that in the weeks after Parkland, they were getting non-stop email solicitations from all sorts of brand new or fairly new companies specializing in social media that were saying, we can fix your problems. And a lot of them were adopting it. One technology director at a school district outside of St. Louis, Missouri, who spoke with The Guardian, may not have received a direct email about this type of technology, but he still did hear about something new. A company called Bark was now offering its own technology to schools for free. Bark's tool is a a 24-hour-a-day monitoring solution that can scan a student's emails, shared documents, and chat messages. If the scanning software finds something concerning, it sends a warning notification to school staff. On Bark's own website today, it says directly, We launched Bark for Schools in response to the Parkland School tragedy in 2018. By 2019, according to The Guardian, Bark said it was working with, quote, at least 1,400 school districts across the country and claims its technology has helped prevent 16 credible school shootings and detected 20,000 severe self-harm situations. Those numbers are taken from Bark, by the way. Bark is not alone here in the sheer volume of students under its watch, according to The Guardian. Again, quote, gaggle a leading provider of school email and shared document monitoring, says its technology is currently used to monitor 4.5 million students across 1,400 school districts. The company claims that in the last academic year alone, its technology helped districts save the lives of more than 700 students who are planning or actually attempting suicide. Again, those numbers are from Gaggle. 
And finally, Securely, another leading provider, says its products are used to protect 10 million students across 10,000 individual schools. In the past year, Securely said it helped school officials intervene in 400 situations that presented an imminent threat. The company's statistics on lives saved are based on their own anecdotal data and have not been independently evaluated. That last bit from The Guardian is important about the lack of independent evaluation. It's crucial, actually, to the expansion of school surveillance because while it makes some sort of emotional sense to everyone to roll out products that promise safety, it makes less sense if those products do not work. And from what we know, Externally, many forms of student surveillance do not work. In 2019, ProPublica, in coordination with Wired, investigated the effectiveness of aggression detection technology, that software I mentioned earlier that gets paired with microphones that have been installed in various schools across America. The reporters didn't do this work alone. They got some help from the people who can test this software best. Students. So at Frank Sinatra School of the Arts in Queens, New York, a student screamed in the name of science to see if the microphones in her school's library would detect aggression. They did not. But at Staples Pathways Academy in Westport, Connecticut, a small coughing fit from a junior did issue a flag from the same software-hardware combo. Further investigation from ProPublica revealed that the specific software they were testing, quote, tends to equate aggression with rough, strained noises in a relatively high pitch. A 1994 YouTube clip of abrasive-sounding comedian Gilbert Gottfried set off the detector, which analyzes sound but doesn't take words or meaning into account, end quote. Another school, Pinecrest Academy Horizon in Nevada, installed two microphones that were paired not only with aggression detection technology, but also gunshot detection technology. According to ProPublica, quote, children slamming their locker doors were setting off the gunshot detector, end quote. The school responded by lowering the sensitivity of the microphone detection software. But as explained in the same piece, lowering that sensitivity can result in certain valid events not being flagged which is exactly what happened at the Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey. When microphone sensitivity there was lowered because the sounds of cafeteria workers shutting their cash registers would issue detection warnings, the microphones later, quote, ignored an agitated man who was screaming and pounding on a desk. The situation escalated until six security officers responded, end quote. And that's just audio detection technology. That facial recognition software that was offered for free in the summer of 2018, SAFR? Here's something. In 2020, Mike Vance, SAFR's Senior Director of Product Management, spoke with CNET, and he shared a rather nuanced understanding about what his company's product can and cannot do. The vast majority of school shootings are carried out by people that you wouldn't necessarily put on a watch list that you wouldn't be looking out for, Vance said. Here, Vance is referring to the capabilities of facial recognition software to be programmed to flag certain people when they are caught on camera, a watch list for who should trigger a warning. Even though several school shootings have been carried out by former students of the schools they've attacked, if a school has no reason to put a former student on a watch list, maybe they're lacking a criminal record or they have no record of violence at the school itself, 
then no facial recognition system alone can fix this. Vance continued, you shouldn't say facial recognition can prevent school shootings because that's really overpromising. I understand that one immediate reaction here might be, well, what about that software that can monitor social media posts? Why can't we use that to inform decisions to make an effective watch list? After all, months before the shooter at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School killed his former classmates, he posted in a comment on YouTube, I'm going to be a professional school shooter. The shooter in the more recent massacre at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, reportedly live-streamed himself abusing and killing animals on the social media platform Ubo, and in a separate live stream, he threatened to rape and kill a user and her mother and to carry out a shooting against her school. Surely, these warning signs can be flagged and brought to a school's attention, which could in turn warn the police or at least speak with the student and their parents as soon as possible. But as we're going to learn, it isn't that school shooters are hiding what they are saying. Many are not. It is instead that what is being noticed sometimes is entirely innocuous. In June, Slate spoke with a journalist named Ari Sen of the Dallas Morning News about a tool called Social Sentinel. Social Sentinel has been used by at least dozens of colleges in the United States to scan social media posts. Social Sentinel's tech claims to use artificial intelligence to find signs of violence or self-harm within social media posts, and it then flags those posts for review. In a conversation between Slate writer Lizzie O'Leary and Ari Sen, Sen spoke of his reporting into the use of Social Sentinel and similar software, and he'd found that, at least from the schools that responded to him, the feedback wasn't great. From that interview, and this is long, and also it's a Q&A, so yes, I am doing both parts, which is weird, but O'Leary. In your reporting, you found that several school districts that bought the software, spending between $1 and $2 per student, weren't getting all that much for their money. Sen, most of the school districts that we talked to that had used Social Sentinel did not find the service to be useful. I contacted every school that we could find that had used Social Sentinel and the three other social media monitoring services that we studied in the state of Texas. Over 200 school districts had used one of these four services since 2015. Most of them did not respond to my questions, but there were a handful, maybe five or six, who did actually respond. I would say four or five of those said that we canceled the service after a year. We didn't find it to be useful, or we found something, a, an anonymous reporting tool, a team of humans to monitor this stuff. We found that to be as good or better than the Social Sentinel service. One thing that I've heard a lot, not only from school districts, but from colleges, is that 90%, 99% of this stuff that they were getting from the Social Sentinel service was false alerts. I've seen stuff like song lyrics, Bible verses, obvious jokes. If you think about the way that people talk on social media, it's a lot of sarcasm, it's a lot of irony, it's a lot of hyperbole. That can be really difficult for machine learning models to catch in general, and particularly the less sophisticated stuff. O'Leary, do you have any examples of posts that got flagged where you thought, oh, come on, that's someone tweeting lyrics? Sen, there is a college in Florida that I was able to get some flagged tweets from. Somebody tweeted the lyrics to the 2010 B.O.B. song, Airplanes. I think it picked up on the phrase, shooting stars. 
Obviously, we've seen people tweeting about their favorite characters on TV shows. If X character doesn't get together with Y character, I'm literally going to die. Things like that. There's a really funny tweet from one of these Florida colleges about Hamburger Helper and how Hamburger Helper needs to accept that it needs help. O'Leary, they thought that was a mental health problem? Sen, evidently. Like I said, it's hard to inspect these machine learning models. We don't know for sure what exactly is going on behind the scenes there. But I am able to look at some of the things that they have flagged, and they don't seem to be threatening at all. What we've heard anecdotally from schools and colleges is like, yeah, most of what we were getting is just not actionable. All right, let's peel back for a bit. Uh, I wanted to quote that Slate conversation at such length because nearly every sentence is an indictment on the promises made by social media monitoring technology. Its clients sometimes do not think it's worth the cost. Its results are according to its users, not often actionable. And it makes basic errors. What that error rate is, is of course not clear, but... Look, this is something even we deal with as a cybersecurity company. Our product cannot raise red flashing lights for every single issue that it finds. That's that's already an annoying product when it comes to cybersecurity. But with school surveillance technology, the stakes have seemingly risen to focus only on school shootings or the risk of suicide. Every notification carries such an enormous weight that... The technology can't be wrong. I'm sorry, it it just cannot. It would maybe be more acceptable if these tools weren't advertised after shootings, if they weren't so tied to the threat of shootings. But they are. And we're slowly immersing ourselves in a system where we think a certain plotting of data points can predict violence, or at least help us intervene as it's happening. And we're accepting that some of those data points will be misflagged song lyrics? Overdramatic fan reactions on, tw- on Twitter? These tools still have training wheels on. But somehow, they're supposed to be used to help address one of the most severe problems in the country. We're going to close our episode with one more story here. And it's based off the work of that journalist who spoke to Slate, Ari Sen, and another journalist named Derricka K. Bennett. And to intro this story, I want you to remember that study that I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, the one from Center for Democracy and Technology that said that 81% of the teachers surveyed said their schools did use some form of monitoring software. That survey also said that the majority of parents and teachers believe that, quote, student online activity monitoring could bring long-term harm to students if it is used to discipline them or is shared and used out of context. This next story is about finding that context. In September, a joint investigation from the Dallas Morning News and the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism revealed that Some colleges that purchased Social Sentinel had reportedly used it to surveil student protests. From the report, which was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center's AI Accountability Network, quote, During demonstrations over a Confederate statue at UNC Chapel Hill, 
A Social Sentinel employee entered keywords into the company's monitoring tool to find posts related to the protests. At Kennesaw State University in Georgia five years ago, authorities used the service to track protesters at a town hall with a U.S. Senator records show. And at North Carolina a and a campus official told a Social Sentinel employee to enter keywords to find posts related to a cheerleader's allegation that the school mishandled her rape complaint. End quote. Social Sentinel's parent company and owner, Navigate360, which changed the name of Social Sentinel to Navigate360 Detect this year, disputes the claims in this report. The company called the investigation, quote, inaccurate, speculative, or by opinion in many instances, and significantly outdated, end quote. And with much of the story's focus on the monitoring or surveillance of protest, Navigate 360 CEO J.P. Gilbo told the Dallas Morning News that Navigate 360 Detect does not have the ability to monitor protests. The word protest is not even in our engines, he said. But emails and correspondence obtained by the Dallas Morning News show that several years before Social Sentinel's sale to Navigate 360, its representatives used language that could give users that impression. In 2017, a representative with Social Sentinel emailed an administrator at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. That representative had emailed that administrator at least twice before, writing that Social Sentinel could be used for, according to the Dallas Morning News, quote, forestalling potentially volatile protests, end quote. Those are the outlet's words, not the representative's. But in November of 2016, the year prior, that same representative reportedly emailed a separate school administrator, again about Social Sentinel, and he specifically mentioned, quote, disruptive demonstrations and protests, end quote. Those are reportedly his words this time. Around this same time, other emails are going out from Social Sentinel employees that actually do use the words, quote, mitigating, end quote, and, quote, forestalling, end quote, when discussing protests. And I realize right now that we're drawing a strained constellation of data points here. A Social Sentinel representative mentions disruptive demonstrations and protests, while seemingly other representatives use language that includes mitigating and forestalling when discussing protests. And after all, aren't we talking about monitoring protests? Isn't isn't that what the claim is? According to the Dallas Morning News, during this emailed marketing campaign, at least four schools, Stephen F. Austin State University, UT Dallas, Appalachian State, and UNC Asheville, also received a related white paper with Social Sentinel's logo titled, Demonstrations and Protests Using Social Media to Gather Intelligence and Respond to Campus Crowds. And here is where those interpretations of monitoring and surveillance might come into clearer focus. Quote, the Social Sentinel service is an important tool for campus security to maintain the safety of faculty, staff, students, as well as other protesters, bystanders, and members of the community. Using threat alert service, security teams can gather information about planned events. They may also uncover information about spontaneous events or unsanctioned flash mobs. During an event, threat alerts can provide important insight about the leaders or agitators who may want a confrontation with law enforcement the general climate of the crowd, and the potential for crowd growth. 
geolocated posts can also track an event's often changing location, providing real-time intelligence on where response is needed. This data is critical for reducing response time and determining possible strategy adjustments, such as increased deployment of officers, location of resource development based on safety slash risk assessments done using information provided in posts, and or altering the level of force that may be necessary to protect protesters, bystanders, or the general public who may be affected, end quote. This white paper doesn't explicitly say that Social Sentinel can monitor protests in the way that many of us are likely thinking. Uh, Social Sentinel doesn't provide live footage of a protest, and it doesn't snake its way into the devices in students' pockets to retrieve their iMessages or, or the photos saved to their camera roll. But it does a lot. And clearly, the intention of the white paper is that, well, maybe you can't monitor a protest as it's happening in the classic sense of uh, boots on the ground, uh, but but with Social Sentinel, you can gather enough information that could inform how a school should prepare for a protest or respond to one as it's happening, or maybe even who to track inside of it. And that capability itself has been disputed, by the way, as Social Sentinel's co-founder, Gary Margolis, has publicly said that Social Sentinel cannot be used to track individuals. But the Dallas Morning News said it found an email dating back to 2015 in which a Social Sentinel employee reportedly told a university's police chief, quote, I hear that you are interested in uploading usernames, user accounts, etc. to follow known threats. We recently released that feature, and you can now upload a list of Twitter authors, end quote. Okay, so without getting our hands on Social Sentinel, it's hard to know what that feature is. Is it to follow accounts specifically, like like everything those accounts say, or is it to trawl Twitter for mentions of that account or, or replies to it? And I understand that already a, a lot of this story is about interpretation, about how Social Sentinel was characterized in emails and marketing pitches, and whether that language matches what Social Sentinel can do. It's a lot of focus on what people said about Social Sentinel, and there's a reason that's so important, at least for me. In the 1,000 pages of documents obtained through public records requests uploaded as part of the Dallas Morning News investigation, Hundreds of those pages include emails about purchase orders or contracts being signed or legal review of those contracts. But but some of the emails reveal the almost mundane nature of selling a service to a customer. On February 18th, 2019, a Social Sentinel representative reached out proactively to the social media manager for North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. The representative linked to an article about the school's then-recent announcement that it was forming a new campus committee to address sexual violence. The representative says that he's noticed a lot of online chatter about the school's chancellor, and then asks if it's okay to put the chancellor's name and online handle into a feature called Local Plus that will, assumedly, allow for closer scrutiny of the posts that mention the chancellor. The social media manager replies, quote, Yes, let's discuss. I really need to figure out how we can get more for our money. 
end quote. This exchange, <laughs> it's a business decision, right? It's an attempt to get a client to see the value in the product. It's got the same motivation as that white paper, which, look, I've edited and proofed white papers before. Their purpose is to push prospective clients into making a purchase. That's content marketing. It's everywhere. But, and you're going to have to humor me for a few more minutes on this, but but that white paper isn't good. Like, it doesn't make its own case very well, not even if what I want is to better prepare for violent protests, because the examples offered are laughable. I, I mean that. Take these two sentences about how Twitter can play a role in protests or spontaneous gatherings on campuses. Quote, with tools such as Twitter, protesters can easily get groups together without much advanced planning. Flash mobs, such as the recent one at Brigham Young University protesting police brutality against unarmed black men, can convene quickly and test the responsiveness and agility of campus security. End quote. Okay, so like the first time I learned about flash mobs was when they were mostly associated with like losers dancing in public as a group. And if you've done that and you're offended... I will not apologize, but then I learned that they're they're like a thing, especially overseas, uh, more associated with massive, quick theft from stores. But let's look at the flash mob that Social Sentinel's white paper invoked. Local reporting from the Daily Herald in Provo, Utah, of that exact flash mob at Brigham Young University says... Quote, at exactly 11.55 a.m., 15 students sang The Hanging Tree, a song from the The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1 film, just as classes were released on campus, end quote. Further in the white paper, and yes, we're just gonna run right past that Hunger Games sing-along because I cannot arrive at a conclusion that is any better than the one you've already reached, but, but further in the white paper... The writers mentioned that, quote, in addition to demonstrators who focus on social injustices or other causes, crowds during or following campus events and concerts sometimes erupt into violence, end quote. And for examples to back that up, the white paper cites Michigan State University's loss to Duke University in the NCAA Final Four College Basketball Championship in 1999, when students set fire to couches, wrecked eight cars, and plundered a Taco Bell. Fair point. But then the white paper mentions the so-called bagel riot. This this did happen. In 2015, Michigan State University, uh, them again, beat the University of Louisville to advance to the Final Four. Students this time, seemingly drunk on carbohydrates, I, I don't know, decided to celebrate by throwing bagels around campus. Arrests were made for disorderly conduct, but the police themselves said at the time that no violence occurred. And remember, this has been cited in support of the idea that, quote, crowds during or following campus events and concerts sometimes erupt into violence. What are these tools for? I I, I mean that, and I, I mean that for all of these tools. Is aggression detection software to detect students in distress or to waste a teacher's time because a locker was slammed? 
Is facial recognition software supposed to stop school shootings, or is that too boastful now that we think about it? And what about social media monitoring tools? Hell, what about this so-called protest intelligence? If a company, given free reign of what to tell prospective customers, if a company can't even come up with enough examples of when its tool would have actually been useful, if it comes up with 15 kids singing a song from The Hunger Games, or kids throwing bagels in celebration, if it has to search for something to prove its existence, then I wonder if what we have with all of these technologies are solutions searching for a problem. And to land on the problem of school shootings is unfair to everyone involved. It's unfair to the people who buy these types of tools who think it will keep them and their students safe. It's unfair to the parents whose students are the test subjects for these tools with little to no externally verified proof. It's unfair to the students, obviously. I honestly think it's unfair to some of the people that work at these companies. Look, no one dreams of being a white paper writer, but equally so, no one dreams of deceiving people through white papers. What if you work at one of these companies? and you legitimately believe your company's technology will stop school shootings. Is it your fault you believe that? Or is it an entire industry's fault that, like we heard earlier, sends non-stop email solicitations following moments of national crisis? I don't have the answer for this problem. I don't claim to. But one thing I think I can claim pretty forcefully is that we're not going to email our way out of it. I want to close our episode by returning to St. Therese Catholic Academy. The principal there, Matt DeBoer, had already keenly spotted the differences between measurable security, actual changes in safety that have hard number outcomes, and our feelings about security. It's that there are what he called, quote, an emotive reality and a data reality, end quote. From EdSearch, DeBoer himself acknowledges that, quote, there's an emotive reality and a data reality, end quote, when it comes to school safety. The latter is that violent deaths in schools have stayed relatively constant over the last 30 years, according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics. But then there's the emotive reality, which is that every time another event like Sandy Hook or Parkland occurs, many educators and students feel they are in peril when they go to school. The technology, at least, offers a crucial sense of relief to staff, for whom, quote, the feeling, end quote, of safety is, quote, real, end quote, DeBoer says. Take the school's office manager who's been with St. Therese over 30 years and is the first person visitors see when they enter the school. With the facial recognition software in place, ensuring that no unauthorized adults are coming into the building, quote, she says she's never felt safer or more comfortable in her job, end quote, DeBoer adds. Quote, it's that peace of mind. Something is greater than nothing, end quote. 
That's our show. You can find every article and study cited in today's episode in our show notes. To our listeners, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. Our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you.